0: Hi, everyone. This is America Adapts, the climate change podcast. Hey, Adapters, welcome back to a very exciting episode. Returning to the podcast is Dr. Carolyn Kuski. Many of you are familiar with Carolyn's previous appearances on America Adapts when she was the director of the University of Pennsylvania's Wharton Risk Center. She now has a new role with a prestigious environmental group. I'll let her break that news to you in the episode. Carolyn is on the pod to discuss her new book, Understanding Risk Insurance. Folks, don't let the topic of insurance mislead you. There are some very exciting developments in the insurance sector, Okay, upcoming episodes. I just got back from 10 days in the Yucatan in Mexico. I'm doing an episode with World Wildlife Fund on how mangroves are a nature-based solution to climate adaptation. I got to visit some Mexican mangrove forests and meet some of the world's experts on mangrove conservation. In my free time, I got to visit some cenotes and Mayan temples. What a remarkable area. I'll have more on that episode in the coming months. And I'm also talking with Dr. Kelly Heriod of Liberty Mutual about climate modeling and what it means for the insurance industry, especially relevant in light of recent hurricanes. Impacts, And I'm working on an episode focusing on the infrastructure bill from last year and what opportunities for adaptation that holds for local and state governments. Great stuff on the way. Okay, Adapters, you've heard me mention this in previous episodes. I've got an exciting opportunity for you. Join me and my new partner, Battelle, for the next annual Innovations in Climate Resilience Conference, or ICR23. The theme is Bold Leaps and Actions. The conference will take place on March 28th to March 30th, 2023 in Columbus, Ohio. ICR23 is gathering innovators across industry, academia, and government to share and inspire science and technology with a focus on climate adaptation and resilience. Patel is taking a lead in the resilience space, and they want you along for the ride. Climate adaptation is still an emerging field, and we're still not seeing participation from all sectors at many of our meetings. This conference has a track record of bringing in government, nonprofit, academia, and the corporate sector. Very few conferences have had success in bringing in the private sector, but this one does. Industry will play an increasingly important role in the years ahead with adaptation. Guys, this is a rare opportunity for all relevant players to come together to share expertise and create new partnerships. The call for abstracts is now open. Here's your chance to share your important work at ICR 23. And some of the themes at the conference are resilient built infrastructure, climate risk and national security, ecosystem restoration and sustainability. So take a look at the conference website and learn of all the other themes. So share your innovative work during the curated technical program featuring keynotes, platform talks, breakout sessions, and two evening poster sessions. Join this conference where leaders and creators are sharing groundbreaking ideas in climate resilience. Even if presenting isn't in your plans, I encourage you to attend and connect with your peers. Think of all the partnerships and projects that are created during coffee and lunch breaks at these conferences. I've even heard from some of my listeners that are interested in going to this conference and they wanted to learn more. There is a huge demand for more adaptation themed conferences. So definitely check this one out. Don't forget, submit your abstract today. Visit patel.org forward slash adapt to learn more. That's patel.org forward slash adapt. Links are in my show notes. Support for America adapts comes from Patel, where science and technology are applied to help create a safer, healthier, more secure world. Patel, it can be done. Okay, let's join Dr. Carolyn Kuski and learn about the growing importance of disaster insurance for climate adaptation. Hey adapters, welcome back. Today I have a very exciting episode. I am talking with Dr. Carolyn Kuski. Carolyn is the Associate Vice President for Economics and Policy at the Environmental Defense Fund. We're going to talk about her new book, Understanding Disaster Insurance New Tools for a More Resilient Future. Hi, Carolyn. Welcome back to the podcast.
1: Hi, Doug. It's so great to be with you today.
0: All right, Carolyn, you've been on before. It's always a treat talking to you. But in my introduction, I had some different news there. You have moved from the Warden Risk Center to the Environmental Defense Fund. Tell us about that. Why the move? What are you doing there at EDF? That's kind of exciting.
1: I have. Yeah, it's been not quite two months since the move, so I'm still getting settled, but I am really enjoying being at EDF. Part of my excitement about joining the organization was, I mean, as you know, I've always been a researcher, but was to help be somewhere to better link research to policy and make sure that we're adopting policies that make sense and are informed by our research, but also that researchers are focusing their attention on the important questions to help solve today's pressing challenges and, and finding EDF to be a great place to do that.
0: You know, in previous jobs, I cross paths with EDF folks more often, but I've never had an EDF person on the podcast. So you'll be my first. So that's fantastic. I know it's there's a lot of economists there, right? That's what they're known. There's a big expertise there on economic issues right
1: yeah i'm in a group in a group of economists okay. and there's also a growing group of policy people thinking about resilience so maybe you'll find other people to have on later
0: <laughs> all right well you'd be my inside person on that so yeah definitely recommend some people all right Carolyn, we're going to talk about your new book here and let's just put it out there. I don't think it's published yet, but by the time I publish this episode, it will be available. So of you people out there listening, you want to get the book, it should be available. But what's the date of it? It's Understanding Disaster Insurance. When is it going to be published?
1: Yeah, it should be out in early October. So very soon.
0: All right. And I also want to just highlight, we're recording this on the morning after that Hurricane Ian slammed into Florida in the Fort Myers area. And actually, I have family that lives in Fort Myers. They're not there right now. Everyone's okay. And I grew up in Sarasota, which is just an hour north. So I've been following this intently. And the reason I bring it up, obviously, insurance is going to be talked about a lot in the coming days. People who have lack of insurance, not enough insurance in Florida being such a kind of a basket case. So I'm sure for you, seeing things like that happen, it just it rattles the insurance markets, right?
1: Yeah. And it really stresses one of the reasons I'm so interested in thinking about disaster insurance, which is that it's becoming so much more important as climate extremes are worsening. Because without insurance, recovery can be really hard on households, on people, because, as you know, disasters cause so much damage. And so there are times when people face enormous expenses. They could also face lost income when businesses get interrupted. So there are these very severe financial shocks for households. And people really need the resources to be able to cover those and get back into safe housing and get their lives back together.
0: So you're making insurance exciting. But I want to read the introduction to your book and so this is your voice and I want to just do the first few sentences here because I thought I love this the opening of this book saying that I research insurance could be a conversation stopper. Most people react with barely suppressed yawn. Many consider insurance boring, confusing, or both. Then there are those with an active dislike for insurance, offering stories of a company's misleading policies or failure to pay in a time of need. That's quite an entry you got there, Carolyn.
1: Yeah, I guess it is. Yeah, there's, you know, lots of people don't have really warm feelings about insurance companies. And they either don't have warm feelings about it, because they've struggled with insurance, or it seems, as I said, as you quoted, they're kind of boring. But I was hoping to change that with the book, because I think there's so much innovation going on around issues of insurance. And also that some of the concepts and approaches of insurance are also being adopted you know, by the public sector, by nonprofits and other folks really trying to use this as a tool to help us solve pressing social and environmental problems. So I was hoping to bring more awareness to what I see as some exciting developments in the industry.
0: And let's start off maybe with some the basics here. And as I was going through the book here, I was seeing some terms and I think I'm generally educated around it, but really I'm not. But you have this concept of a risk management triangle like sort of underlying all this. What What is that?
1: Yeah, well, I did want to stress... You know, that insurance is just one piece, as you say, of broader kind of risk management, and it can't stand on its own. We also have to be effectively thinking about risk reduction and the things we can do to reduce our risk. And indeed, I'll just say, you know, that's a really strong complementarity between our investments in adaptation and insurance, because when we lower risks, it makes the insurance cheaper and easier to provide. But then the other part of that triangle is risk communication and understanding and making sure people are aware of their risks and that we're responding to them appropriately. So we need all of these pieces to be working together. So the book's focused on one node, but being very cognizant that it's only one node in this much bigger picture.
0: And could you define it? You know, I was seeing it over and over again. And of course, probably nine out of 10 people would be able to answer this, but just risk transfer. It seems obvious, but what? what is that?
1: Yeah. And I think maybe that's a technical term that I'm trying to hope will catch on more broadly. But the reason I use that term is because it's a broader term to refer to any time you're sort of shifting risk from one entity to another. So the basic underlying idea of insurance, right, is that I'm paying a little bit in the good years so that when there's a really a bad thing happens to me, I get a payout. So it's sort of this financial protection. And that reduces the risk to me of bad things happening because instead of facing that huge damage, I now know that I will get, you know, funds to help me pay for that. But as you get deeper into the book and things start to get a little bit more technical, you'll learn that there are approaches to doing that that aren't technically insurance. They're actually financial products. Some listeners might have heard, for example, about catastrophe bonds, but these are other tools that sort of act like insurance. But it's actually incorrect to say they're insurance. They're not actually regulated as insurance. So I was trying to be inclusive and include all of that.
0: No, I mean, I have I've I figured it out, but I'm just like risk transfer. And, and I, it's an important concept. And, you know, before we talk about the main sections of the book here, too, and it insurance, as you say, I mean, I'm going to be gravitating towards you at the cocktail hour, even though you think it's a boring subject, I'd have a million questions <laughs> for you, but I, I know you well. But I, I wonder as a researcher, too. There seems to be so much psychology of buying insurance or why people get insurance. That must be really interesting for people like you because it just seems when people are being responsible, it's because they're required to be, like the state or their local government requires them to buy car insurance, buy you know a particular type of fire insurance. And it seems like the mandated insurance requirements are more likely, whereas it just makes so much sense to get flood insurance in some places, but people don't get it because obviously they don't want to pay. But there's a psychology of insurance too. Right.
1: Yeah, absolutely. And you're so right. It's lots of people just won't buy insurance unless they're forced to. And I think there's a number of things underlying that. One is maybe sort of an obvious thing, but insurance is a product you buy hoping you'll never have to use. And there's no fun in that. Who wants to buy something that they hope they never, you know, it doesn't bring much joy or whatever, as it were. So there's that. And then I think there's also, Things that I know you've talked with other guests about on your show, sort of lack of fully understanding the kinds of disaster risks that people face and being aware of those. And if you're not really aware of the risks that you're exposed to and the harm they can create, then you probably aren't going to be thinking about the need for insurance. And then I think there's also some misunderstanding about insurance itself, because it's so different from most products we buy. It's not something, as we said, you use right away. It's also not an investment. You can't profit off insurance. You're going to end up paying more in than you get out. And the reason for that is that you're making these extra payments in order to have this protection. You're buying yourself this protection, which is a little bit different from other things. So yeah. And then add on top of that, all the other kind of behavioral biases you talked about, how we tend to be overly optimistic about being exposed to disasters and have trouble thinking about probabilities. So all of that combines to really depress voluntary demand for insurance.
0: Just, I was trying to think just really quickly, what what do people purchase and with the expectation they might never use? And I I just think of collectors, right? I used to collect comics as a kid and some people collect because they think they're going to sell, but most people collect Crap! That in all you know likelihood they'll never sell again. Star Wars toys or whatever, and yet they still spend all this money because they have this sort of peace of mind. We need that kind of peace of mind for more people buying insurance. So somehow,
1: that's true. I think there is some people who recognize that it does can provide that that comfort and peace of mind, knowing that you have that protection. On the other hand, you know, with collectors, maybe you get a lot of joy from looking at them on your shelf. Right. I don't know. Your
0: insurance policy <laughs> just sitting. Out Nobody's
1: there. gonna gaze at their right. insurance right.
0: policy. Before we we get into some of these sections two. I just want to hear at the beginning who did you write this book for? I mean that I think that's an important part. I mean it's not necessarily general public, but who did you really have in mind that for this?
1: Yeah, I had a couple audiences in mind. I think the primary one was for policymakers at multiple scales from local governments up to federal agencies and nonprofit groups who are starting to think hard about the role of insurance in climate adaptation and in managing the growing risks that we face as a society. But I was finding that some of those individuals who wanted to really kind of help push on insurance and make sure that it was supporting these broader goals we may have often you know, didn't have any training in insurance or background in it and sometimes misunderstood aspects of what insurance can or can't do or might not have been plugged enough into the industry to know about some of the innovations happening. And so I was hoping this could help those groups better harness insurance and better provide sort of surrounding policy to support it. I also hope it'll be helpful for students who are thinking about risk management and disaster going forward as well.
0: I would hope too, and I said not for the general public, but I think there is an opportunity there. You know, I think Groups like FEMA, they come in after the fact and they're trying to create a lot of awareness, like getting this book even down, I think, of some of those innovations to like that brochure level, like what are pieces that could be taken that are giving just homeowners even that level more awareness that they have options. So I, you need to get the PR people on this to really find different platforms for it to be shared. And a podcast is another way we're doing it, but I think there's great opportunities there.
1: Thank you, Yeah.
0: Let's dig in. And you're going to just do this. We're not really digging into the, the details too much here because we want people to go out and buy the book. And they're going to learn a lot more if they read it. But let, we want people to have an understanding of what's in the book. So like, there's three parts. And in part one, disasters, their economic consequences, and the role of insurance. What were you trying to accomplish in that section?
1: Yeah. In the first part of the book, I was trying to really lay the motivation and foundation for why I think disaster insurance is an important conversation to be having right now. So a lot of that was about how risks are changing in our world and, you know, what happens when we don't have insurance, sort of what the challenges are. And then also to lay out some of those things we were just talking about, the basics of insurance and risk transfer and how it works. And also to tee up this important point, which is that Disaster insurance is harder to provide by the private sector, and it's more expensive in general, and to help readers appreciate that insuring disasters is a trickier business than, say, insuring your car, and that when you have disasters where everybody gets hit at the same time and the losses can be so profound... That that's not easy for the private sector, as we've seen actually recently over the past couple of years, insurers are going bankrupt in Florida and Louisiana because of how severe losses can be. And so that we're dealing with a difficult problem before you add on, you know, the forcing function of climate, which is making it even worse.
0: Part two, the structure and operation of disaster risk transfer markets.
1: Yeah. So in part two, we're getting down into the nitty gritty. So this is some of the technical details about how insurance works, how the markets are structured, how insurance prices are set and what drives them. Also talk a little bit about what to do about that challenge when people can't afford insurance, but they need it. And I also talk about what we mentioned a minute ago, which was these other forms of risk transfer. So there's a whole chapter on this idea of catastrophe bonds, and how they're being used. And then I end that section talking about how climate is creating all this stress in markets right now, and whether that's going to create crises and in, the, in the markets and what to do about it.
0: Okay. And so in the third part, and I think this is the part that probably excites you the most is that the innovation to unlock the potential of disaster insurance. And so innovations out there. All let right, right, let's, let's talk a little bit about that.
1: Yes, you're right. That's the section that excites me the most and that I like to talk about the most. But I think you sometimes need parts one and two to really appreciate what's going on in part three. Yeah. So this is the area where... Let me back up for a second. I think it's quite evident to lots of people that there's a lot of potential with insurance, but it's not yet realizing all that potential. There's too many... You know, stories in the news about after these disasters, how insurance companies, you know, people might feel like they're not getting sufficient payout. They're not getting as much as they thought. They're still struggling financially with recovery. And there seems to be sort of limited links to how to support risk reduction or broader social and environmental goals. And so insurance can get a bad rap. But I think there's these innovations happening that are trying to actually change the way we conceptualize the insurance system and make it better at helping people with recovery, which is its primary job, but also address a lot of the inequities that we see in recovery from disaster. So how can we make insurance work for those people who can't afford it and have been locked out of the market so far? And then how can we rethink it to not just be about recovery, but to reduce risks ahead of time so that we can actually lower damages and then I end with a look at, which might seem more far afield from where you'd think insurance should play, but how insurance can actually help us with goals around biodiversity loss and conserving nature and environmental restoration. So that's maybe the newest of the kind of innovations.
0: I like the sound of that. All right. I, I'm going to ask you a few more questions about this section, because I, I think it's just it's really going to be the, the, you have great case studies. And tell us a bit about Lemonade, this company called Lemonade.
1: Yeah, that's interesting. So one of the fundamental challenges, which anyone who's, who's filed an insurance claim can probably appreciate, is that a difficulty with our current model of insurance is that at the exact time you need payouts, Any dollar your insurance company gives you is a dollar less profit. So there's this fundamental tension at the heart of insurance, right, of misaligned incentives between the insured and the insurance company. And Lemonade is this company that tried to undo that tension. And instead, they group their policyholders around charities that the policyholders want to support and they take off a set amount for their operating expenses, and then they pay claims, (laughs) and anything left is donated to the charity. And so because they only take a set amount for the firm, there's not that tension about an additional dollar anymore. And so the thought is that that will create better incentives for the insurance company in paying out full amounts and not Sort of undercutting payouts to their insureds when they need the money, but also that it'll create better incentives on the part of individuals to not, you know, try to commit insurance fraud or anything because they know they'd be taking money away from the charity and not the profit line of a big firm. So it's a, it's a totally different way of trying to structure what an insurance company means. And so for that, I think it's really interesting. Yeah, but it's there's still some challenges as with every firm for actually providing sort of catastrophe protection, because that's more of a risk pooling model year to year. I also talk about some other interesting takes on how to restructure insurance. So things like captives, which are insurance companies that are actually fully owned by the people being insured. And we talk about one captive that's also a nonprofit. So besides innovation on insurance products, there's also these interesting innovations on the underlying business model.
0: Okay. So that's really cool about lemonade, trying some different things. This was a new term for me is parametric insurance. What's that?
1: Yeah. So this is an interesting innovation on how you actually structure insurance products. And it's getting more and more attention as a way to help manage some of the financial costs of climate-related extreme events. So most of the insurance that listeners are probably most familiar with, like their homeowner's insurance or their auto insurance, it pays you based on the amount of damage that you sustain. So if like a tree falls on your house is an example I like to think about. Your insurance company sends a loss adjuster, a person to your house to see how much damage there was and then determine how much they owe you based on that, right? And that's important. So I want to be clear. Parametric can't replace you know, your standard homeowner's insurance policy where you need to be really sure you're going to get That exact damage amount for all sorts of losses that might help you. But parametric insurance opens up a whole new tool for different types of, to solve different types of problems. So parametric insurance pays based on an observable measure of the actual hazard event. And usually they're metrics measured by some independent third party. So it would be something like the wind speed within so many miles of your home or the height of floodwaters on a gauge reading. And the interesting, and then you get a set amount of money once that what's called a trigger, once that trigger is reached. So once wind speeds hit that threshold, you get the money. The thing about parametric is one, it's really fast because you don't have this long loss adjustment period. You don't have to wait for someone to come. And in a big disaster, that can take a while because there's just simply not enough people to go around and do all the loss adjusting. And it's less contentious. It's just the set amount of money. And you know, you get it. There's no fighting with your insurance company about whether that adjustment was right or not. So some people find it a little bit more trustworthy because of that. And the dollars actually are also really flexible. So you can use it for any type of loss you might face. And so these combinations of speed and flexibility make it a really good tool for some needs that are currently not well met by our current system. So one that I talk about in the book is something called microinsurance, which is Because you eliminate all those transaction costs, it makes it now possible to write smaller scale policies. So they're for less money, but that also makes them way less expensive. So that opens up insurance to say lower income populations that might not otherwise have been able to afford it. And we've seen that rolled out around the globe, particularly lots of programs and sort of developing and emerging economies. And another thing it does is let you Get payouts for other types of non property related losses. For example, sometimes like hotels might use parametric insurance to help offset, you know, losses in people coming to stay when there's a hurricane warning, right? And they lose all that business revenue. One thing with parametric insurance is there's so much variety and flexibility because you can set the trigger in numerous ways. So it opens up a lot more tools for us
0: you know, as I was going through some of the different options like you just described there and they're more in their examples and people that can afford insurance and just ways getting people insurance for that they need it. I I just kept coming back in my head because, you know, I'm originally from Florida is like innovations in getting people out of these places. (laughs) You know, it it just seems like this sort of baseline is like, well, we want to get people options to insure their homes. And I don't know, looking at the big pictures you know, even innovative ways for low-income people to get insurance to stay in places they shouldn't be. And of course, there's a lot of judgment there and people have their homes, but big picture macro planning just seems to encourage more people to live in areas that they shouldn't be living in. And what about innovations in that respect?
1: Yeah, it's a really good point. And I would love to see more emerge from both our public sector insurance programs and our private insurance market on exactly this point. So one model, and actually this has started to be the case in California now, is that at the time of a very severe loss, that you can take the money from your insurance company and relocate. Because oftentimes there's this pressure to rebuild exactly what you had where you had it. And of course, the time of the disaster can be a time for us to rethink and build back safer, whether that means somewhere else or stronger or any number of things. It's also a time as an aside to incorporate, say, sustainability things and other things. But often people need the financial means to do that, right? And so it seems to me entirely possible to design a homeowner's insurance product where you get to take your full payout and relocate and maybe even get a bump if you need that to find equivalent housing somewhere else. The trick then is tying that to some type of program that would then manage the land and keep it in open space, like happens with our federal buyout programs, so that you're not just having one person able to get out and somebody else move into the risky location and then them suffer all the losses, right? So making that link, I think, is institutionally the challenge to do. But If we could do it, it would solve some of the problems with our federal buyout programs that, as you know, take so long to get to people. And right after a disaster event is the time when some people would choose to relocate, right? But if you can't get them buyout dollars for three, five years, they, you know, people don't have the resources to like wait that long, you know, they have to start rebuilding. And so there's a lot of missed opportunities that a, a better insurance model, I think, could help solve there. And I will say, I think, I saw that there was a bill introduced earlier this year for the flood insurance program that would essentially couple a type of buyout to a severe loss with the NFIP, which is sort of a similar thinking to get those buyout dollars quickly at the time of a loss
0: yeah leave it to california to come up with those innovative ideas to yeah you you have to have this partnership with the local government state government about what's going to happen to that land because someone else coming in defeats the whole point but it still gives the insurance company they don't have to come in and insure that house per se They're, they're i guess hopefully creating a long relationship with that homeowner that they got to get out of there and now you know hopefully they're not required to stay in insure that home, which makes it that much more difficult to sell to someone. So yeah, I get say and so what I want go on, go on.
1: Well, so just to build on what you were just saying, because I think that's so right. I mean, in some of the highest risk areas, like those high wildfire risk areas of California, we're seeing private insurance companies not renew people's policies. They're assessing it as too risky to continue insuring. So you'd think there'd actually be interest maybe if limited to these very high risk areas in that type of Policy to help people get out when it doesn't seem viable to keep insuring either.
0: You're familiar with some of these managed retreat conversations. Do you feel the insurance industry is dabbling in those? And that and you know, managed retreat, let's say Miami in mass, people are leaving coastal areas to going to safer areas in regards to climate change and more resilient areas. And it's a whole field. And I you know. Dr. A.R. Sider, she's a big leader in this area. seems like insurance companies would play such a major role to encourage these sort of macro movements of people. Have you heard much chatter in the insurance industry?
1: I haven't, and I think it's a lost opportunity and it's a place where the insurance sector should start playing more because those are such important conversations and insurance could be a really useful financing tool to help add to the suite of approaches there. So I think it's an area that... Maybe folks will hear this podcast and start engaging. <laughs> well, it. Yeah. Cause I, that's exactly right.
0: It could be stick or care in that, you know, the, the care is like some of those incentives that you get people. Oh, you're going to move here. But the the stick is that we're going to just keep raising your rates or we're going to pull out. And so local planners, local elected officials, they're not going to do the responsible things. And I, and I, I, I understand it. All right. We want you to move away from here. It's sort of a political <laughs> suicide, but you need the big players to c- create like a situation that you just can't sustain this. And uh, those are tough conversations. But some of these coastal areas, I'm sorry, six, seven, eight feet of sea level rise. It's insanity for people not only to stay there, but encourage others to move there.
1: Yeah, absolutely. And one of the biggest challenges with insurance helping incentivize those kinds of decisions that need to be made is that Insurers, public sector or private, don't want to commit themselves to what rates are going to be in the future. So you really only ever see this year's insurance premium, which is only for this year's risk. And we know conceptually that in high risk areas where risk is going up, the insurance prices have to go up too, but nobody's really seeing them. Like they're not put in front of you that this is how much the costs of ownership are going to go up because your insurance is going to go up this much. And so I think. It's not playing as much of a financial signal in climate adaptation as it could if it was coupled to these better communication tools about how rising risk means rising costs.
0: Kind of to wrap up and to go back to Hurricane Ian, there was a great article out just today from Christopher Flavelle, a great writer for the New York Times with Bloomberg for a long time. And he has that adaptation resilience nits. But I just want to read something from his article here is, Most of the Florida homes in the path of Hurricane Ian lack flood insurance, posing a major challenge to rebuilding efforts. New data show in the counties whose residents were told to evacuate, just 18.5% of homes have coverage through the National Flood Insurance Program, according to Millman, a firm that works with the program. So that's pretty horrifying. You think of all these counties that were told to evacuate and this potential risk, and barely any of them have flood insurance. That just seems so irrational to me.
1: Yeah, it's really problematic. And yeah, his reporting is always. So great. And, you know, Florida is the state that has some of the best take-up rates and most flood insurance in the country. And yet there are still these big areas where you know, lots of people just don't have coverage. And that, you know, as we're going to see is just so painful for households in recovery then because our other sources of recovery are so limited. Most people don't have enough savings in the bank to pay for these huge disaster costs and taking on additional debt can be really burdensome. And we know the federal aid programs are often insufficient and take such a long time to get to people. And so figuring out policy paths forward to make sure more people have the flood coverage they need and can afford it I think are a real priority for our country.
0: Fortunately I'm not like a politician in Florida but I've had this discussion before talking sea level rise and environmental law and the idea of using eminent domain to just take over some of these landscapes that they shouldn't rebuild on. Fort Myers and you know Lee County they're going to rebuild and it's like they should, here's an opportunity this you know eminent domain get some money into the hands of people that need it and they're going to go move somewhere else but use just you know, swing for the fences on and some big decisions that have to happen here. And I know that won't happen. And recommending it would be political suicide. But the idea of just, all right, we we're going to radically rethink how we're going to to deal with this landscape. I'm not going to win any fans in Florida with that, but it, <laughs> to have that reckoning sometime.
1: Yeah, but we're getting to a point where we have to be sort of thinking seriously about reforming the way we fund and finance disasters, right? Because the costs are just going up and it's not going to get easier, is it? So yeah, so these are important discussions to be having.
0: All right, before we wrap this up with my last question, I just want to thank you, Carolyn. In your notes, you have an episode of America Adapts as a reference Is part of this book. Thank you. I'm always encouraging that. I think there's some great content, not just on my podcast, but other podcasts that it's a great source of educational material. It's not a journal article. I don't pretend it is, but thank you for doing that. I was such a, I was just thrilled to see it there. And it's just, it's a nice plug for the content that I think podcasters are doing out there. So thank you.
1: Oh, of course. Absolutely. I love your (laughs) podcast.
0: Thank you. All right. Last question. And I've asked you this before. If you could recommend one person to come on the, the podcast, who would it be?
1: Maybe. Have you had any of the California insurance people on? I have not. Well, I could recommend. I've been lucky enough to be a part of a task force that the California Department of Insurance has put together to think about how insurance and climate adaptation and particularly around nature-based solutions can all work well together. And it would be great to maybe talk to folks in the California Insurance Commissioner's Office, whether it's Commissioner Lara himself or Mike Peterson, who's been leading this effort within the department, or the chair of our task force, who you might have already talked with, Alice Hill, but all have some great insights on continuing this conversation if you want to keep going around insurance and climate change.
0: That sounds like a great recommendation An unusual sort of group that I would have on. Do you have some good contacts there? I, I guess, you know, Alice Hill, I could ask her advice too. So
1: Yes. Yeah. Or Mike Peterson is a great person to connect with.
0: Carolyn, congratulations on the book. It'll be out by the time this episode's published. You always write really well. It's really important work and it's fantastic. You're at EDF and thanks for coming on.
1: Thanks for having me on, Doug. I always enjoy talking with you.
0: Okay, Adapters, that is a wrap. Thanks to Carolyn Kuski for joining the podcast. Definitely check out her book, Don't Let the Topic of Insurance Dissuade You from Diving In. Even if you're not directly working in the area, the book covers adaptation in ways that will be really important to your work. And Carolyn definitely has a lighter touch to the subject. It's a very readable book, and I really enjoyed reading about case studies of innovative insurance tools. I hope local government people and planners start to understand these tools and bring it into their work. I think many of us see frequent articles about how the insurance industry is getting serious about climate change. And as Carolyn inferred, that really isn't the case. They are just scratching the surface and they can become important drivers of adaptation planning in the years ahead. Connect with people in insurance, especially those doing climate modeling. Also, a reminder, check out the show notes for that Patel Innovations in Climate Resilience Conference in Columbus, Ohio, March 28th through 30th, 2023. Submit an abstract. Okay. I'm always hearing from listeners that they have started listening to the podcast in the last few months or the last year. And that means they have missed out on a bountiful archive if they haven't poked around at previous episodes. So I'm going to dig in the vault when I can and highlight two previous episodes in case you need some recommendations. In episode 21, Inside Out, The Grief, Trauma, and Anxiety of Climate Change, I spoke with Dr. Renee Lertzman. Dr. Lertzman is an environmental psychologist and founder of Project Inside Out, a resource hub and emerging community of practice that unites activists with clinical psychologists. We discuss what is climate grief and anxiety, Steps individuals and organizations can do to address these issues and turn to action and the value of an emotional intelligence and how adaptation and mitigation have more in common than you think. And in episode 83, To Sue or Not to Sue... Legal Liability and Climate Adaptation with the Conservation Law Foundation. I spoke with planner Deanna Moran and environmental lawyer Alina Mahali from the Conservation Law Foundation. Deanna and Alina came on to talk about their report, Climate Adaptation and Legal Liability. Other topics included Current court cases relevant to adaptation and climate change, using legal liability as a tool to affect policy decisions, the need to update building codes to reflect climate threats, what industries and sectors are most vulnerable to adaptation litigation, and how will the legal system evolve with. Adaptation Court Cases. Definitely check those out. The links are in my show notes. What's your climate adaptation story? Do people that you engage with understand what is climate adaptation? Are you finding that webinars and white papers really aren't resonating in ways that promote your work? Well, consider telling your story in a podcast. Sponsoring a podcast allows you to focus on the work you're doing and sharing with climate professionals from around the world. I go on location for these sponsored podcasts, just got back from Mexico, and that allows you a wider diversity of guests to participate. You will work with me to identify experts that Represent the amazing work you're doing. I've had many great partners, NRDC, University of Pennsylvania, World Wildlife Fund, UCLA, Harvard, some corporate clients. It's a chance to share your story with all my listeners who represent the most influential people in the adaptation space. Most projects have communications written into them. Budget in a podcast. Podcasts have a long shelf life, much more so than a white paper or conference presentation many groups work into the communication strategies. There's no better platform than this podcast to get the word out on adaptation to some of the most influential and active adaptation professionals in the world. Check out my website to learn more. And if you're interested in having me speak at a public or corporate event like a conference, reach out. I enjoy giving these keynote presentations. I share stories from the podcast and my own long experiences doing climate adaptation. You can contact me via the website americadaps.org. And you guys, hear this every time. I love hearing from you. And I hear from folks from all over the world. And it's the highlight of my week just learning who's out there, who's listening to the podcast, how it brings value to what they do. Email me, americadaps at gmail.com. I'd love to hear. From you. Okay, adapters, keep up the great work. I'll see you next time.